1: President Biden flexes his foreign policy skills, imposing sanctions against Russia for invading Ukraine. Could this boost Biden's popularity? Plus a review of Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's first 100 days in office. And pot dispensary owners are inviting Massachusetts gubernatorial candidates inside for an up-close look at the business. We're spending the full hour with the Mass Politics Profs. Joining me remotely, Aaron O'Brien, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts Boston. Hi, Aaron.
0: Hello, thanks for having me.
1: Gerald Duquette, Associate Professor of Political Science at Central Connecticut State University. Hello, Gerald. Hello, glad to be here. And Rob DeLeo, Associate Professor of Public Policy at Bentley University. Welcome back, Rob. Hello, great to be here. All three are contributors to the Mass Politics Profs blog. Well, we're going to start with the big news of the day, and that is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Very thin reasoning on the part of Putin, but President Biden had been saying all along he did not believe Putin when he said he was not going to invade. Here he is delivering remarks on Russia's invasion of Ukraine.
3: This is the beginning of a Russian invasion of Ukraine, as he indicated and asked permission to be able to do from his Duma. So I'm going to begin to impose sanctions in response far beyond the steps we and our allies and partners implemented in 2014. And if Russia goes further with this invasion, we stand prepared to go further as with sanctions. Who in the Lord's name does Putin think gives him the right to declare new so-called countries on territory that belong to his neighbors? This is a flagrant violation of international law and demands a firm response from the international community. We're implementing full-blocking sanctions on two large Russian financial institutions, VEB and their military bank. We're implementing comprehensive sanctions on Russian sovereign debt. That means we've cut off Russia's government from Western financing. It can no longer raise money from the West and cannot trade in its new debt on our markets or European markets either. Uh,
1: Rob, I'm going to start with you. What are the policy issues that are outstanding in your mind right now? Even as we know, as we're taping this, things are moving and changing. um, So it won't be settled, if at all, certainly for the next few weeks or days. And um, so in this moment, as you're looking at the invasion, the pushback from the NATO allies, President Biden stepping up the sanctions? What, what, what are the outstanding policy issues?
4: Well, I think that, you know, if if anything, all of this really calls into question whether or not the United States is, is dealing with a, a rational actor in this case. I think that the scale and scope of the invasion um, really s- suggests that they may not be. And so it's difficult For me and I think for for any policy scholar to really evaluate the efficacy of these sanctions, will they work, will they be a sufficient deterrent, Um, because thus far they they clearly haven't so it's a it's a precarious situation and you're correct there's uh, so much happening so quickly it's it's challenging to really assess what will stick what will work. And what if anything can be done to begin to deter Putin from further aggressive action.
1: So just to follow up with that, Rob, uh, President Biden took a little bit of heat from the outset saying, I'm going to roll out sanctions and increase the severity as it as I go along. And many thought that was a wrong move and said you should just do it all at once. Um, I don't know if there's something to compare it to in history that you can look back to say this worked before or this might not work. Or what's your assessment of his strategy in this moment of of staggered sanctions?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult for me to
1: uh,
4: assess, you know, what the relative effectiveness of of, uh, uh, outlining the sanctions right away would have been. I I will say, you know, looking at recent history, the Biden administration's approach to this particular crisis um, has, in many respects, been quite different from their management uh, of the situation in Afghanistan, where I think by and large, they were largely reactive. They were caught um, flat-footed to events as they occurred. Um, in, in this instance, what was really striking was the Biden administration was, was really quite proactive in constantly leaking intel uh, on the Russian government's movements and plans in and around Ukraine, which is is certainly not something we've seen from this administration and not something that I can recall, certainly from recent memory, uh, in terms of a, a foreign policy approach.
1: Okay, Gerald. One of the things that President Biden has been clear about saying and emphasizing is that Russia, as uh, he said, alone is responsible for the death and destruction caused by the military action. Um, I assume that's to make it clear to the rest of the world and to our allies, we know who the enemy is. We're all going to be united against this guy who's out of line. How do you assess it?
2: Well, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I think it's always, always important to isolate the enemy as much as you can. And that's a rhetorical operation as well as a military operation and every other kind of operation. So that's definitely part of that strategy to isolate them. But um, I would just say about the incremental use of or the escalating use of sanctions. I don't know what other option there is because we are probably, it seems, dealing with an irrational actor. And so if you were to say, I'm going to, you know, fire all my (laughs) ammunition in terms of sanctions at once. Well, when that doesn't work, what do you do? So by by simply putting out there, we're going to get worse and worse. You may, in fact, be doing your best each time to make it bad. But having rhetorically given yourself the flexibility to threaten more and more seems like a fairly conventional kind of rhetorical move on Biden's part. So,
1: Aaron, one of the things that people have tried not to speak out loud too often, but I'm going to in this moment, is nuclear warfare. And if we are dealing with uh, an actor, as both uh, Rob and Gerald have said, who is You can use unhinged, but, you know, just not together. That's really quite scary.
0: Yeah. I mean, my most base level reaction is that it's frightening. And I know that's not terribly analytic, but, you know, you had asked about historical comparisons. And the Auschwitz Museum tweeted out, and I'm just the last paragraph here, at this moment, the free and democratic world must show if it has learned its lesson from the passivity of the 1930s. Today, it is clear that any symptom of indifference is a sign of complicity. You know, I'm careful of those kind of comparisons. But nonetheless, if you have an irrational actor willing to move in and, you know, make these claims of genocide um, I'm not sure if sanctions is enough. And you're right, like they're sitting on um, a, not a lot of nuclear warheads. And so, you know, this is the biggest fear, the biggest fear coming true. And I'm also struck by here in the United States, in many ways, Putin might be an irrational actor, but he has played the United States thus far in one. You know, uh, there's division as to whether Putin is the bad guy and domestic policy circles right now. I shouldn't say circles, in uh, partisan circles. Um, so, you know, this idea that politics stops at the border has been over for a while, but I'm really struck by that here. And if we're not united in our response in the United States, how do we expect to align all the NATO countries and, um, Europe?
1: Do any of you worry about the NATO firm line at this point breaking? Gerald, go ahead.
2: Uh, I'm not sure I know enough about it to really say authoritatively, but I, I definitely, um, I definitely take, uh, uh, Aaron's point about sort of, uh, politics no longer coming stopping at the water's edge and the the i think that it's probably true that uh destabilizing american domestic politics is at least some uh, part of the Putin uh, strategy here, and I also think that you you know we 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 are characterizing him as an irrational or a non-rational actor. Of course, that's not an unknown strategy, right? I mean, it's 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 positively Nixonian to try to be unpredictable, which makes it interesting that he has been so carefully and clearly and pre- uh, accurately predicted. And I think that might be part of why the, the president has made it uh, taking great pains to predict what was going to happen. Uh, that might be an effort to sort of offset uh, his efforts to, uh, t- to exploit the idea that he's unpredictable.
1: Anybody else want to weigh in on that?
4: Yeah, I, I would add that, you know, I think that to get back to Aaron's point, it, it does really highlight what I think um, is really in many respects, with foreign policy, a crossroads within the Republican Party in particular, um, which has become increasingly isolationist over the last decade plus, a big step away from sort of the more establishment Republican hawkish view of American power in the world. And I think that um, this it, it, this incident really um, is a reckoning for that. And we will see how that shakes out and how coalitions realign after that.
0: I am nervous about the NATO coalition in that just based on domestic politics, if we can't be largely aligned here, how do we expect to hold those coalitions together? And, you know, there are, we forget, well, that Russia has real resources. You know, most of continental Europe is reliant on the oil that Russia has. So there are interdependencies that make it harder to just fully sanction Russia, which is what they'll do. But sanctions take a while. And sanctions, it's the people that pay for sanctions more than Putin will not be personally affected. And so it's an ongoing situation. And it's one that most of us um, have not lived through in our uh, era. So I think that, that that makes a lot of this unknown and the instability of domestic politics makes it even harder to predict what's going to happen
1: internationally. And I would just put a button on this and note that China is a voice in the world, a huge voice in the world. Mm-hmm. And they are not so impressed that this is irrational behavior on the part of Putin. And they have many ways in which they can, too, put pressure individually on other countries. So yeah. we'll we'll see where, where we are now in the context of all things are political. Biden has been suffering some low ratings, um, lots of chatter among some of the enemies about not strong enough, not tough enough, not this. And then the mess with Afghanistan, you know, didn't help. So here we are with Ukraine. And he's done a couple of things that have stood him in good stead, it seems. First, he said from the beginning, this is a false flag situation. I do not believe he can say a million times, I'm not going to invade, meaning he, Putin. And I know that he is. And we're going to work on two fronts. We'll try to do diplomacy, but we're—I'm sending people right now. So now that it's happened, you know, there are folks who have not been so rational in responding to him and some of the other things he said. Who have had to say, "Well, he's done the right thing," and that includes Republicans. That even includes Mitch McConnell. <laughs> so, is this a boon for his uh, political popularity, Aaron? No,
0: I think you're right that some establishment Republicans have followed the sort of rally around the flag effect that um, we rally around the president in a foreign crisis. But quite frankly, that's not what you're seeing in partisan media. So, um, I mean, we have significant portions of Americans who think because they dislike Biden, they're with Putin. Um, So I I think this is uh, historically, I can't think of another time where a major foreign crisis has occurred And the American public has, uh, some of the American public, but a significant minority of the American public has sided with the aggressor. You're right, Afghanistan makes this all more complicated. But let's be honest, most Americans aren't experts in foreign policy. And in the past, they gave their president a fair amount of discretion. I think establishment Republicans are acting under that old playbook but partisan media is not, and um, and and in that way, Putin wins. I mean, there's a bit of a direct line to you know, and the 2016 election create disruption, uh, create division. Now he does a major intervention in Ukraine, and Americans are divided on this. I mean, it's sort of hard to remember that the first impeachment trial with Trump involved um, Kiev. And the president of Ukraine, Mm -hmm. Uh, I see these things as very interconnected. And again, I think Putin, yes, he's even a lot of people surrounding him are saying he's increasingly irrational, but irrational actors sometimes win. And right now, I think um, he's doing that. And I think uh, Joe Biden's uh, has had a measured Response: We forget sometimes that Joe Biden really built his foreign policy credentials in the Senate. I'm just not sure that American publics are uniformly willing to go uh, along with the president, even though, by my mind, um, the evidence is so uniformly on Biden's side.
1: Uh, picking up from Aaron, Gerald, the fact is that the sanctions are going to, whenever they come, um, to the United States, and they are actually they're already happening. The gas prices are going up. There's going to be Um, some hurt to us. Now, he said that, but does that mitigate any possibility that he could gain some political points?
2: Well, certainly not. I doubt it will mitigate it as much as he would hope. The the sort of classic uh, ability to uh, use a foreign crisis to rally Americans to a side it just doesn 't exist in the way it used to. We live in a very different polarized political environment in the United States now, and there's there's very little doubt that uh, that polarization will uh, will not ease significantly you You pointed out that uh, Mitch McConnell uh, seems to want to rally around the president, but Mitch McConnell is trying to fight off uh, you know trump style candidates that he fears won 't get elected uh one of the one of the markers that I will look at here is uh just a few days ago it was widely reported that uh Trump-supported uh, Senate candidate J.D. Vance of uh, of hillbilly elegy fame uh, sort of brashly said, "Who cares about Ukraine? Uh, nobody from Ukraine would sacrifice their life for Americans. We don't care about them." And my question will be: Will that rhetoric hold up? Will he continue that line of argument? If he does, that tells me that 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 you know in the sort of uh, conservative media bubble and the uh, conservative base that that's still a winning message. If that's the case, then I think. Uh, President Biden is in for a very difficult time uh, in the run-up to the midterm.
1: What would you add, Rob?
4: I would echo um, all of the points that were raised, and I think the J.D. Vance example is a a really good one. I think you're going to see a lot of these Trump-supported primary challengers really echoing that very rhetoric uh, around who cares about Ukraine. The, the only thing, I guess I'll be, I'll, I'll provide somewhat of an upshot here for the Biden administration. <laughs> the only thing I would say is that I think Afghanistan, and this is going to be a, probably a through line in a lot of our conversation today, but but also um, his early handling of COVID and the Omicron uh, variant in particular, I think it did uh, shake Biden's legitimacy, even with his own base. And I think that, if anything, um, his early handling of this particular crisis may begin to assuage um, some of those concerns within Biden's own base. Again, these are you know very small victories. I concede that it's going to be a tough road ahead. Um, but I do think the optics of Afghanistan were really quite bad Uh, for President Biden and his early handling of this and the fact that a lot of what he he said ultimately came true, I do think that that can begin to repair um, his legitimacy in the eyes of uh, his own base and party.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are three of the Mass Politics Profs, Erin O'Brien of UMass Boston, Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State University, and Rob DeLeo of Bentley University. Well, let's turn to another executive under fire. That would be Boston Mayor Michelle Wu. She's been in office uh, just a little over 100 days. It seems to have gone so fast, but there it is. And she's now sitting at a point of managing the COVID-19 protocols. Uh, By the way, she has determined that the Boston kids in K through 12 will continue to wear masks, even though Governor Baker lifted the mask mandate across the state. Um, So she's managing that. She's just lifted the ban from the restaurants and bars and and gyms, however. And at the same time, she has to replace both the superintendent of public schools and a police commissioner. So there's a lot on her plate. I have to say, I'll begin this way, and then you all can add a more analytical context. Where I come from down south, we would call her a steel magnolia. And I don't think a lot of people thought she was. (laughs) So, so Erin, I'll let you start.
0: (laughs) Yeah, uh, having some southern Virginia roots myself, I know what that is. Um, (laughs) uh, You know, uh, this is why I I would never want to be mayor. I think you uh, laid out very clearly all the challenges that she has had on her plate. I think what she's been most effective in is following the science. You know, she names, here's our community uh, positivity, ICU beds and number of hospitalization. That's what's going to drive this. I think the fact that, um, you know, I think it was two weeks ago that uh, the courts decided in favor of the, some, uh, the Boston union in terms of the firefighters and the police in terms of once again delaying the vaccine mandate i think she's a steel magnolia and that she's had to go against those unions that were um favorable that listened to marty walsh even though that he got grace from them that michelle wu has not and she's faced a huge front hundred days and she's shown herself to be you know someone who's going to follow the science and is going to continue to fight in the courts or elsewhere against these unions that refuse to get vaccine mandates. Um, Some have said, you know, dropping the vaccine card in the city of Boston before it really felt like it went in place is problematic. And I disagree. I think if a new variant comes along um, that proves problematic, Michelle Wu has shown that she will act and she will act based on science. And this is Boston. A lot of people actually believe in science, like science and like a mayor who follows it.
1: So Gerald, from your long distance, short, long distance view, what does it look like?
2: Well, I actually see uh, her present situation. I think of her as a target of opportunity for uh, so, sort of uh, trump style right wingers who really don 't have the satisfaction when they 're going after the governor when they 're going after the state legislature this is a This is a a mayor and it 's easier to protest it 's easier to to get the kind of headlines they 're looking for. I see this as uh, she 's being hounded by uh, folks whose agenda really isn 't local. But like all over the country, they've been weaponizing school boards and weaponizing local politics. It's part of a larger sort of narrative that really isn't focused on policy at all uh, and really isn't concerned with local government at all. I just see her as an easy target, a a brand new progressive mayor of Boston, especially when you consider that uh, they're they're sort of playing on the hope that uh, there's enough anti-progressive sentiment in statewide voters that they're not going to get completely wiped out in uh, November. Well, Rob, the, a lot
1: of the protests against her are not policy based necessarily but are quite personal attacks on her on her personhood on the fact that she's the daughter of Taiwanese immigrants and that has been seen over and over again and I think let's just say that people have have come to realize that it's the kind of pressure that she's under that has nothing to do with her policies.
4: Oh, I would completely agree and you know building on Aaron's comments about, you know, tying These decisions to metrics as a way to begin to diffuse some of those attacks. You know, I I think it's important that we stop and acknowledge just how challenging it is uh, for policymakers to govern something like COVID 19. You know, usually when we think of the policymaking process, we think of this sort of lurching from issue to issue, uh, typically after you have some sort of event or a souring. Uh, of indicators or maybe feedback that a a particular uh, policy or program isn't working. With COVID, um, we're asking uh, these individuals to govern in near real time and in response to these changing metrics. So I would add that not only is tying her response to the metrics important with respect to relaxing, These protocols, but also if she needs to reimpose them later, I think it will be important. And one other point I would be remiss if I didn't add, and I think this speaks to why the dynamic with her is a little different. It's notable that her communication style is very different from that um, of her predecessors. In what way? Well, what I would say is that she makes fairly robust use of social media mm. um, in ways that her predecessors did not. Actually, I-, I would be hard pressed to identify many local politicians that make as robust use of social media and so directly engage with their constituents. And as someone who's done work on public health policy making, I will say that there's pitfalls to that. There's dangers to that level of interaction. But at the same time, A lot of these decisions that we're asking individuals to make, whether it's masking or vaxxing, they're deeply personal, um, and success ultimately hinges not only on what the government tells you to do, but on individual compliance. And so I think that she has taken so much time to speak directly to the citizens of Boston, I think that will serve her well over the course of this pandemic.
1: Um, Aaron, do you think that, as some have suggested, that she's caved to the unions in a way that I think Joe Mbenaki was, was com- making this comparison in a column that in the way that Governor Baker did not, which seemed would be unexpected, in other words?
0: Uh, no, I don't. I, I mean, I think that take was um, cursory and that, um, you know, it getting in the weeds, Baker did stand strong um, uh, against some of the unions and again noticeably their police unions and firefighter unions. That, it's not all unions that are doing this, it's a particular type of union. And he went through the Labor Relations Board and it was an issue of whether or not the, the, you had to bargain in a public health crisis to do the mandate. Um, Michelle Wu has been dealing with going through the courts and it, those are two different things. The court uh, a week or two ago went back and said, no, you can't do these mandates. So now they're going higher up in the courts. Michelle Wu didn't sit back and say, okay, well then we're going to withdraw our complaint. She said, we're going to go higher up. Now it's also the case that I can't help that noti- but notice that Charlie Baker um, had got support in his election and re-election. From the police and the firefighters and uh, a lot of those unions uh, members were with Charlie Baker. Those unions are not used to not being courted. And in uh, the Boston mayoral race, they were not courted. Indeed, they were seen as um, problematic. Arguably, you could say Anissa Sabi-George you know, uh, was the closest with them, but full on endorsements by the police have become problematic in Boston city politics um, because of, you know, all the things we know going on with uh, racial reckoning, uh, et cetera. So I think it's, it's not a fair take in my mind to say she caved and Charlie Baker's fighting. They are fighting on um, completely different context And I think those unions take some glee in going up against Michelle Wu, that they do not take that same glee in going up against Charlie Baker. So I think we need to, she is fighting an incredibly difficult context. And I'm not saying Charlie Baker's is easy, but it's easier than what Michelle Wu has faced.
1: All right.
2: Anybody want to add to that? I'm almost tempted to say that Charlie Baker's is easy. Uh, This is a, this is a, you know, technically a lame duck governor whose lame duckhood, it makes him essentially more powerful than he was when he was not a lame duck. In other words, because of the unusual sort of subordinate position of Massachusetts governors, he has more political leverage as a non-candidate. Going into 2022, than he would have as a candidate. So I think it's an unfair comparison: uh, a woman in her very first, you know, months of a mayoral uh, uh, tenure and a, a, a governor on his way out the door. I don't think that the comparison makes any sense. It's a it the leverage differences between uh, the mayor and the governor in this in this uh, situation is apples and oranges.
1: Um, and I would just note, because you did um, in your sentence, that this also has uh, the ring of sexism on many levels. <laughs> so. Yeah, no,
2: no doubt. It's low hanging fruit for the for sort of the right wing activists.
1: Right. Um, the cannabis people are really interested in getting the, the gubernatorial candidates inside the shop to get A first-hand look.
0: And Michelle Wu deserves to go there.
1: Well, well, Michelle Wu is not a gubernatorial candidate. I know. That's true. (laughs) She doesn't need need that in her 100 days. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe she does, but she's not going at this moment. (laughs) But uh, anyway, what do you think about this? They so far don't seem to be uh, excited about it. Uh, The only one who had said she would is Daniel Allen, and as we know, she's withdrawn from the race. So... Um, I actually thought it was very clever of them to say, stop talking about us, come in and take a look and see what really is going on.
0: Yeah, it's respectability politics. Um and I think they're they've managed to get a news cycle and some news stories when um, people aren't visiting them. I think Chang Diaz said she would go as well. But, you know, like it's sort of like an I, I don't publicize invites that people don't respond to. Yeah, <laughs> that's sort of embarrassing. Yeah. Um, but I think they were adept politically to say, hey, come see us. And now there's a story about that because the cannabis industry wants to be viewed like the alcohol industry. Um, uh, that, you know, innocuous and no different. And uh, I see it as respectability politics in uh, the vice field.
1: Okay. Um, Rob, uh, Gerald, any comments?
2: Well, I, I think that the uh, Aaron's got it exactly right in terms of respectability politics. That's a phrase that I hadn't thought of applying here, but it's perfect, and, uh, and that's exactly what it is. It's a it's an opportunity that they have taken and made probably the most of it that they can. The the the, the various candidates still in this thing have all responded exactly as we assumed they would, uh, and there's always this sort of. Um, side issue of the fact that uh governor baker has has, you know is trying to propose promote a a legislation that would uh, allow for um you know measuring impairment uh by uh marijuana in terms of uh, drunk driving or on driving and that that complicates the issue a little bit in terms of who can be for it and who can be against it because that legislation is controversial and he's getting a lot of pushback so, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a, a sort of a peripheral respectability play by the cannabis industry. Rob?
4: Yeah, I, I would add, I, I, I do think, uh, picking up on Erin's point, I, I think Sonia Chang Diaz said she was going um, to go visit as well. And I, I do find um, her acceptance of the uh, invitation notable. Um, do I think a visit to Uh, a dispensary is going to uh, tip the election uh, in her favor. Uh, Of course not. Um, But, you know, this is a time where she's trying to build some name recognition. Certainly, I think more Healy uh, right now, you know, is, is widely seen as, as the favorite in this race. But, you know, these types of moves that can help differentiate her and, and can help, Uh, um, begin to build some of that name recognition early in in the cycle, I think are important to her. And so it it could be useful in that respect.
2: It's probably also notable that the, everybody knows the attorney general couldn't say yes to this invitation, given her past posture on this. So, and that's, and I don't know if we should factor that into the play, but it is clear that this, that the AG was going to be in a position where she was going to need to have a schedule conflict.
1: Mm. Well, the other thing, too, is I guess we'll know if they become, you know, big players in the political scene once they uh, uh, attempt and someone accepts some um, campaign money from them. Right. right? right. So we'll yep, see how yep. that goes. So This may be the first step toward that. Well, coming up, it's more insight and analysis from the mass politics profs. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're continuing our discussion with three members of the Mass Politics Props Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State University, and Rob DeLeo of Bitley University. Let's pick up where we left off. And where we left off was talking about uh, gubernatorial candidates. So um, it's important to mention that one, who was very active, Danielle Allen, dropped out. Here she is on GBH's Greater Boston this month, speaking about why she dropped out of the Massachusetts governor's race. Well, you know, it's just pure math. The caucuses started, and we have a very impressive candidate in the form of the attorney general, and she did her work. And I know we did our math, and there was no path. And you, that happens, you make the call. Um, But really, you know, for all the work we've been doing around the country, I think the just key point is we should be making voice and access as easy as possible.
0: You know, our democracy is under threat. And responding to that is about making voice and access as easy
1: as possible. So I was, I uh, have to say, surprised because she came out, you know, fairly early. And her people have been strong, trust me, uh, keeping us all appraised of, you know, what she, her thoughts on various policies and, and uh, what she was opposing, what she was supporting. So I was surprised. Were you surprised, Rob? I was surprised as well. You know, I, I do think
4: it's a bit premature, but I certainly understand why she opted to drop out. You know, I think the prevailing narrative uh, in the state right now is that that this is Maura Healy's race to win, and I think that that was actually the narrative before Maura Healy even announced uh, that. She was running. I remember having conversations with you, Callie, uh, about a, a potential Morahealy um governorship. Um, so I, I do think that, you know, there's there's definitely a strong tailwind in this case that's favoring Morahealy. Um, but you know, there's still a long way to go. Um, and there are challenges that come along with front runner status. Um, and so let's see how that shakes out. Were you surprised,
2: uh, Gerald? I, I was very surprised, and uh, and I may be even a little bit disappointed in two ways. Uh it is it, it, it surprised me. For instance, the clip you you uh, uh, played there that it, it was about math. I don't expect a person who cuts into a race on policy or movement kind of grounds to tell me that it's about the math. I didn't. I, I assume you're a Harvard professor. You knew going in the math was never going to work for you. So that surprises me that she would use that as a as a. I'm not going to win, so I'm getting out. This is a person who came in with very strong policy beliefs and and even sort of progressive movement uh, agenda, and it's surprising to hear a sort of a, a political excuse. And on the other hand, I was also a little bit concerned uh, as a sort of as a political scientist who. Uh, understands uh, you know political parties as having a very important intermediary role in our political system I was i was sort of disappointed with her sense that uh, you know uh that uh, the the nomination process or the the ballot access process in massachusetts is uh, shutting out uh, alternative voices uh, uh, essentially in a sort of an anti-party uh, message that also reflected uh sort of a, a lack of appreciation of the of the need for vetting the need for a nomination process that isn't completely eviscerated. So
1: I will say, Aaron, I was minding my own business, having hot chocolate at my favorite bakery. And I was accosted by someone before she dropped out to say how she was working very hard on behalf of Danielle Allen in the caucuses, which, by the way, I didn't even know there were caucuses here. I, I always think of it as an Iowa thing. And so she said, you know, I said, really? And she said, yes. And I said, do you think she can win? And she says, well, I think she could win. But more importantly, it's it's important that her voice be in there to push. These are her words. more Healey more to the left. Uh, and so she said, I I am very strong for her. I think she's saying all the right things. And so I and a number of other people are working hard for her in the caucuses. So I wonder, Erin, if something came up in the caucuses that indicated to her early on, that uh, what Gerald said was disappointing to him. The math uh, became real.
0: Yeah, I think what ha- I mean. I wasn't surprised. I when that that clip you played with the the math isn't there. She's a professor of government. To me, I was like, thank you, analytics. You're right. <laughs> like, Mm-mm. yeah, yeah. She followed the data. Um, um, But what you're referring to is that uh, the the delegates that are selected to go to the convention, um, uh, to get on the primary ballot, you need to get 15 candidates have to get 15% of those. And when she's saying the math isn't there, she couldn't get those 15%. Uh, Not enough people would pledge towards her um, because she didn't say this, but she said, you know, uh, or the feeling is that because Maura Healy is taking up all the energy in the room. Uh, uh, you know, Professor Allen was able to raise money pretty well, but the math wasn't there. And she does have a critique of that 15 percent threshold. She thinks that um, party politics people, not necessarily party activists, because those two sometimes come to you know heads, that uh, the party has too much control over their own ballot. And I know Gerald has uh, real critiques of this. Our colleague Peter Ubertascio does as well. But um, for me, this was a, a smart person who knows politics and who knows analytics. And while it's frustrating to many because of what you know the person who uh, interrupted your hot chocolate had to say, <laughs> and what Gerald had to say about, you know, she has been a real policy forward person. But if you can't get 15%, you can't get 15%. Cut your losses. And she was very careful to say, you know, more healy's a quality candidate who got in. So uh, I thought it was an exit strategy that was incredibly smart, if frustrating to those who align with her.
1: But maybe it's just a little premature. Mm, it, it felt like that to me, but I but I'm not running, so. But yeah,
0: yeah exactly. I think we don't know what those deals looked like. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe, right. the, and right. this is pure hype uh, speculation, which is bad. <laughs> but you know, maybe <laughs> she could <laughs> get only three percent. That's embarrassing.
5: Mm-hmm. Right. You know. Right. If,
0: they know that the, I trust her and her team to say that they weren't close to 15%. And it's better to drop out now before to have that embarrassing outcome when um, she impressed a lot of people in the Democratic Party. If it, it just, you know, there was a candidate that the Democrats like better. It's not that they disliked her. So I think she leaves with a lot of social capital. And that social capital, I think, could have been, um Evaporated some if she came out with two percent, three percent of pledged delegates.
2: That makes sense to me.
1: So I have to give credit to my hot chocolate friend because she put on my <laughs> mind that you know there were caucuses. I said what? I mean I was really so ignorant about it. So um, and and the second thing that she said I want to follow up now about the pushing of Maura Healey. Is there a way for Danielle Allen to do that not in the race and have and and by the way, in a larger context, does she have any political weight? Because she just endorsed Tanisha Sullivan for secretary of the Commonwealth. And I thought to myself, does does that mean she has political weight to do that?
2: She's got half a million bucks. Okay. Yeah. All right.
0: (laughs) And it's easier for Chang Diaz if it's a Chang Diaz versus Healy race. Okay. that uh, I think I still think it's a real uphill battle for Chang Diaz, but she has more name recognition, at least uh, in the eastern end of the state and a head to head battle uh, that gives, you know, the progressive activist one candidate to align around.
1: Okay, Um, what about uh, Daniel Allen's political weight in other as she's using it now with, for example, supporting Tanisha Sullivan? Does that work other than the money? I know you said the money, Gerald, but do other people right. think that has weight?
2: Oh, it, it certainly has weight. She's value added, no question. Okay.
0: And where are the the people that were really strong in her candidate? That woman who is so strongly in Alan's camp, she's an activist who's willing to do work. She's willing yes, to do the hard work for a candidate. That's right. And so i think though having those individuals like her go to the sullivan campaign that that's a huge value added maybe so even more than money
4: okay yeah and i i would add that the the sullivan campaign right you know these races for secretary of state all of a sudden they're within this context of uh an assault on voting rights across the country they're Mm -hmm. they're much higher profile races right so for someone like danielle allen uh to, to, to throw her support behind a candidate, it also allows her to remain visible. Now, I don't know if she's going to campaign or or what her plans are, but these aren't, you know, inconsequential races from a political perspective. People are paying attention mm. to them, both here in the state and also nationally. Mm.
2: Uh, if if I might argue against myself a bit. Uh, okay. <laughs> to, Tanisha Sullivan is a movement candidate as well with a strong progressive reform agenda. And so Danielle says the math is not for me. I'm going to I'm going to not waste these resources. I'm going to put them into a candidate who has a chance Mm. of winning, who uh, who actually shares my progressive values in terms of transparency, in terms of voter access, et cetera. So in that sense, we could argue, uh, you know, uh, that this exit from the race was more substantive and positive. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're
1: listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Joining me are three members of the Mass Politics Profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State University, and Rob DeLeo of Bentley University. We're discussing the latest local and national political stories you need to know. Well, let's move on to another story, a very interesting race. This is uh, one for the uh, 2nd Suffolk District State Senate race, the one that's Sonia Chang-Diaz formerly held before she decided to run for governor. And Liz Miranda and Nika Elgardo are running against each other for that seat. Both of them are in the House at the present time. They both came in at the same time in 2018. And they both say that their focus is on economic uh, development, economic opportunity and health equity, says Liz Miranda. Um, Elgardo says she wants to focus on economic development as well. So, what do y'all think? Um, who are, are any of you paying attention to this race? I think it's quite interesting. And um,
4: I agree. Mm-hmm. I think this is a really compelling race in part because in in my mind, at least it's pitting um, two of the superstars from that 2018 crop of progressives uh, against one another. And it's, 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 fascinating to see their ascension through the through politics in in Massachusetts. And I think both will be formidable candidates. I I am a little bit worried about the number of women that are actually leaving their positions in the House. You know, there's there wasn't a a great number of them there. But between Carolyn Dykema, Claire Cronin, Lori Elric, Sonia Chang-Diaz, you know, it, it seems To me, these are, they're leaving, a lot of them are leaving for really great reasons, you know, better positions, better jobs. Um, But, you know, that 2018 group, in in my mind, really strengthened the position of women in the house. So I'm happy to see them moving up. I'm really excited about this race. But at the same time, I I am worried a little bit about the house. Mm.
0: My women in politics, I teach women in politics, heart is full. (laughs) I love this race. (laughs) Just analytically, like as Rob noted, uh, Massachusetts is really like average in terms of descriptive representation of women and women of color in um, the House and Senate. And we're last in New England by most metrics or a lot of metrics. Um, And so I view a race like this as uh, we have seen, you know, Rob mentioned that 2018 all-star group. Maybe Massachusetts is finally positioning from just descriptive representation, the victory is being there, to pipeline that these women are moving into, as Rob said, into better positions and to positions with more autonomy and authority in that position. And to me, uh, from a macro sense, it's awesome that there's more than there's room for more than one woman and more than one woman of color in the race. So I'm hoping this is bellwether of moving beyond uh, the victory is when these women win, to when these women are allowed to have ideological differences, when they're allowed to be competitive with one another, and they're allowed to move up. And I think that's some of what we've seen with um, the Boston City Council.
2: Hmm. Daryl? Well, this is Callie, and I remind you that I am the Western mass (laughs) political Uh, So
1: (laughs) Okay. That's fine. (laughs) Now, two things we should mention, that uh, the this seat, as I mentioned before, was held by Sonia Chang-Diaz. This was the first so-called majority-minority district drawn in the state. You know, we're having redrawing some of the districts and uh, some part of, I guess, Jamaica Plain is being affected in this new drawing. But nonetheless, the other thing to note is that there are other people's other names that are floating, so it's not over. Some other people could get in the race. Uh, They include uh, Minyard Culpepper, who's the pastor of Pleasant Hill Missionary Baptist Church, Pastor Willie Broderick of the 12th Baptist Church, and Senator Diane Wilkerson, who you know, former Senator Diane Wilkerson, who was Uh, held a position in the uh, state Senate long ago before she was indicted for um, corruption charges, but has uh, come back strong and has built a, a, I would say, a pretty fairly solid uh, political organization at this point. So there is always a possibility that any of those people could join. I should say that I have interviewed both of them in a professional capacity, but I know Liz Miranda personally. She's a graduate of Wellesley, where I sit on the board of trustees, and she is also a member of the dynamic and distinguished Delta Sigma Theta (laughs) Uh sorority. There you go. (laughs) So I I need to make sure that that's on the record for that. (laughs) (laughs) A good sister. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So moving on, um, let's talk about this historic vote or what's been called a historic vote, the House has passed it. The Senate has yet to do it. And this is about uh, the driver's license bill for Massachusetts residents who are undocumented. This has been in long in contention, back and forth over years. Here we are finally, Rob. What does it mean? Well, I think it
4: means that sometimes just good, sound public policy will win the day. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about um opponents to this bill uh, sort of leverage the critique that this would discourage immigrants from from applying for citizenship you know I, I just don't know that that's the case when you know most of the evidence that we've we've heard in support of the bill is that they're they're already driving so from a public policy and and quite frankly um from a public safety perspective why not ensure that they're licensed and make sure that it's easier for police officers and the general public uh, to have a sense of who's on the roads?
1: So the final tally was 124, 36 against. Let's take a listen to the back and forth uh, debate that went on. Um, here's State Representative William Strauss, he's a Democrat, and State Representative Paul Frost, who's a Republican.
4: Our job, our task, of doing traffic enforcement is made better, is made easier when the person behind the wheel presents a driver's license.
3: We are now starting to incentivize that, hey, don't worry about being undocumented. Don't worry about being here illegally. You can still come to Massachusetts And not only can you get an ID, you can get a driver's license.
1: Um, So, Gerald, this is uh, something that has passed in other states. Uh, Massachusetts would be the 17th state. But you hear the debate. You hear what the concern has been over the years as this has
2: come up. Well, in Massachusetts, the debate has largely been a rhetorical one. And uh, many of those states that have this law are bright red states. Uh, law enforcement endorsed this idea, so I think when this was controversial, it was controversial because of how easy it was to use as a wedge issue. And I just think that the uh, you know mass GOP having fallen off the deep end has just changed the politic the politics of this. Uh, I think it's a lot easier for the for the, House, the leadership in the House and the Senate even, to, to be for this bill for policy reasons, just as uh, my colleague has indicated here. And I also think that it doesn't hurt them uh, in an election cycle when they're very sort of, um, let's say, apprehensive about their relationship to progressive activists. Mm. Aaron?
0: Well, I'm struck by, like, you know, Massachusetts, let's not forget Massachusetts is a state that approved by referendum just 20 years ago in 2002, a ban on bilingual education. So, uh, yes, that was repealed in 2017. But to me, 20 years is in a long time in public policy. And I think both my colleagues are correct that once law enforcement was so in front of this saying that this is good public policy on the ground you know, take us out of your macro discourse, party politics stuff. This is good on the ground policy. That's why we saw uh, the percentages pass in the House that we did but from Massachusetts has not been great on immigration policy. Remember when Deval Patrick wanted to bring um, some uh, undocumented individuals at the border to some of the bases, people lost their mind. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, I think that th- this is a big deal for, as Rob said, sometimes good rational public policy can pass um, and we'll see what happens in the Senate and with Baker, but what a change in 20 years.
1: Yeah. All right, finally we're doing a lot of house centric stories, but this one is interesting. The Massachusetts State House is reopening after 2 years. The 2 years, of course, following finally. Yeah, following the pattern of COVID, there were real reasons to keep it closed. Safe public safety, health safety was one of them. Um but now it's open. So what so but we are the last, I guess in the country to to do so. Did you uh, agree that it was necessary to wait until as long as we did, I guess is the question.
0: No, it's gross. <laughs> okay. I work for the state. I'd like to keep working for the state as I say this. <laughs> We've been back in school face-to-face since fall. And if you're asking public workers to do that, that are not necessarily frontline um, then your state house has to be open to the people. In the same way, you can ask them to wear a mask and all that stuff. I'm totally for that. I think we should st- keep masking. But residents of Massachusetts don't like hypocrites in their politicians. And the state house being closed this long felt like, you know, um, do as I say, not as I do.
2: I basically see this actually sort of an insider issue. I don't think the average voter gives a damn whether the building is open or not, quite frankly. Out here in the hinterlands of Western Mass, certainly, we were not concerned about whether reporters could get access to you know, members of the legislature. So to be honest, I think it, that everything that Aaron said is true. And I think folks like us care about that sort of stuff. I just don't think it's I think it's uh, not so much as under the radar generally as off the radar.
1: Okay, so I want to point out that uh, the first person inside after it was open was a a lobbyist for disabled Massachusetts veterans. So it just wasn't reporters trying to get inside. There were other people who wanted access uh, to the legislators and then just the general public just wanted access.
4: You know, I completely echo everything my colleagues have said. I, I, I you know, people I, I've been in the classroom for a while, so I would hope that they're, you know, back at work. It's, it's time. Keep masking, you know, keep taking precautions. Certainly one thing I, I would add is we're learning that you can do a lot virtually and through zoom and, and online but we're also learning that there there's certain things that you we can't do and when it comes to to governance in policy making you know a lot of policy a lot of the discourse around policy and discussion and debate it happens outside of sort of formal session it happens outside of the committee hearing It's the informal conversation Mm. in the hallway. It could be a lunch. It could be just an an elevator ride. And so I do think that there's something to be said about creating and ensuring that we're still able to get back to normal and facilitate those normal organic interactions. Because I think when you look at sort of the, the history of major reforms, a lot of deals are broken um in in places where maybe we wouldn't predict for them to be broken so i i think it's a it's a good thing and it's it's healthy for massachusetts government
0: Real quick, just as an example of that, you know, an elevator moment we saw during the Kavanaugh hearings mm. when it was Senator Flake was, um, uh, they say confronted, but was addressed by protesters in those uh, elevators saying, you need to do more hearings on this. We're not for Kavanaugh. And he changed his, Now, he ultimately voted for Kavanaugh, but it slowed the process down. And that doesn't happen, to, uh, to Rob's point, that doesn't happen on Zoom.
1: All right. Well, as the protesters would say, whose house? The people's house. So there you That's go. Right. <laughs> Thank you all for joining me. Thank
4: you. Our pleasure. Thank you.
1: Aaron O'Brien is an associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Gerald Duquette is an associate professor of political science at Central Connecticut State University. He and Aaron are co-editors of the upcoming book, The Politics of Massachusetts Exceptionalism, Reputation Meets Reality. And Rob DeLeo is associate professor of public policy at Bentley University. You can read more of their analysis on their blog, MassPoliticsProfs.org. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH. Produced by Hannah Ubeli and engineered by Dave Goodman. Vanessa Handy is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.